You are listening to Vida Abundante. We have started a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. Here's Pastor Jonathan Gallardo. But this is a very important, crucial book that we will be discussing for these weeks. We're not going to prolong the series just because I like the Gospel or it's my favorite Gospel. Uh, We're going to take some time to really understand the Gospel of John because the implications that John has about the person and the work of Jesus Christ over our lives is amazing. And what I told you guys last week is of utter, utter importance. Do you know who Jesus is? Not only what he does, but who he is. Some people only know Jesus as that wonderful man that walked with the poor and the disenfranchised and sat with sinners. Other people know Jesus as that one that can do wonderful miracles. Others know Jesus as the nice, meek, merciful guy that would walk around in sandals, not flaunting his wealth. But what do you really know about him? Who is he? And what has he done in your life? That's the most important question that you have to ask yourself every time we address the book of John. What is Jesus doing in my life? What has Jesus done in order for me to wholly surrender myself before him and not approach church as just another service? This has been the downfall for many people that go to church. We just go to church. We are just churchgoers, but we don't know Jesus. And so because we are just churchgoers, It's easy to be like, I don't want to go to church today. Eh, Maybe next week either. Because we are just churchgoers, we could just disregard the the unity of the church, the, the, the body of the church, because we don't understand the head of the church, which is Jesus Christ. And so what John has been doing and what he will be doing, not only in this first 18 verses of chapter 1, but he's going to preach present the unity and the headship of Jesus Christ over his church. Which is why we began with the identification of what the word was. If you come back to the beginning of chapter 1, we read these two verses last week. In chapter 1, the first two verses say, In the beginning was the word. That is what John, or that is how John identifies the person of Jesus Christ. How does he identify him? By titling him the name, the word. We're going to finish off what that means in a bit. But his title as son of God gets substituted in for the word. This sentence would read a little bit easier if we were to read, in the beginning was Jesus Christ, or in the beginning was the Son of God, or in the beginning was the Lord, which was a highly uh, esteemed name in Hebrew culture. But we don't get that. We get, in the beginning was the Word. And what I told you last week is that we, in the following uh, verses, we get two more affirmations about this Word. In the beginning was the word, that's affirmation number one, in the beginning, the word was existent. And the word was with God, that's the second affirmation. And the word was 
God. That's the third affirmation. And verse 2 kind of sums it all together. And it says, he was in the beginning with God. The Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. So those three things have identified this concept of the Word or the person, Jesus Christ. And that is a presentation that we get right off the back. He is the subject matter of the first 18 verses, and not only the first 18 verses, but the entire Gospel of John. Not only that, but Luke, the other Gospel, affirms that all the prophets, the law, all the Psalms point to him. He is the subject matter of the entire Bible. This word, this person of Jesus Christ that we will get introduced to in verse 17, we finally get his name, but in the first verses we get the word concept. So in order to understand this a little bit more, we, we began to speak a little bit about where the, this concept of the word comes into existence. Why does John use the term logos in the Greek to describe the person of Jesus Christ? Well, to do a quick review of last week, we spoke a little bit on two uh, overtones that are in the name. Uh, we have a Greek philosophical overtone, and we have a Jewish philosophical overtone included in the name, the word, or in the, the, the word, the word. I'll, I'll say logos from now on just so that it doesn't become redundant, word, 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 word. So I'll use the word logos to describe what we're talking about in the first verse. So one of the overtones that we get from, from, from it is this Greek philosophical overtone. And, and I'm not going to spend too much time on it because it's not too important. But what I do want you to understand is that John understood what he was doing when he said, in the beginning was the word. It wasn't an arbitrary decision to just come up with this, oh, logos is pretty cool. Let's use logos to describe the word. No, John knew what he was doing. Many of the 5th century uh, B.C. Philo uh, philo philosophers from the Greek culture like Heraclitus were one of the first ones to bring this concept of the word as one that would order the cosmos. So in 5th century B.C., people in the Greek philosophy would, would consider the, the logos term as someone, as a person, who was in charge of ordering the entire cosmos. And the word cosmos will be uh, redundant as well in the Gospel of John. We'll see a lot of that in his Gospel. As a matter of fact, one of the most famous verses of the Bible of all time, uh, John 3.16, speaks on that word cosmos or cosmos. The Stoic philosophers, especially this, this Jewish Hellenistic philosopher called Philo of the 1st and 2nd century, began to describe the logos as the divine principle that would spread throughout the entire cosmos or that would bring order to the universe. So the Stoics, the, the Greek philosophers, were considering this word concept as, an, as a person or a thing that would bring order to the universe. That was their understanding of the Lagos. So you begin to understand a bit why John is using this in the beginning was the Lagos. 
The Jewish people, however, the people of God, the people of the book, the people of the Old Testament, understood the term logos in a different way, similar, but a little bit different because the very Bible, especially in the first, second century, the Greek translation, the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the word logos in substitute for the Hebrew word devar. Devar means word in the Hebrew. And the Greek Septuagint would translate devar into logos. Why? Because, well, go with me quickly to Psalm chapter, 20, chapter, chapter 33. Just want to show it to you really quickly here. Psalm 33. Verse 6, it says this, by the word, the Hebrew word right there is devar, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, it says lagos, by the word, the Lord of the heavens, the Lord of the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth all their host. There is the creative force behind lagos. It was the creative entity or the creative power of Yahweh. This is what the Jewish people understood as God being involved in creation, using creation by its side. If you read Proverbs chapter 8, it's described in a little bit different way as wisdom, but this is the, per, the, the powerful creative action of God. In Psalm 33, 6, we saw the creative power in Psalm 107.20, we see the word as bringing deliverance to its people. In Psalm 29, verse 3, we see the word, the logos or devar, bringing in judgment to the people. And the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel use this logos word or devar word to bring understanding to the prophets. So if you read the, the Old Testament and you read the prophets, you'll say, and the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, and the word of the Lord spoke to Jeremiah, and the word of the Lord came upon Ezekiel time and time again. It was this well, prophetic understanding. God's word, God's logos came down, and it brought direction to God's people. That's this concept of the word that we're beginning to see. They also understood it in a type of wisdom fashion, which we see in Proverbs chapter 8. Now just turn with me to Proverbs so that you can see it in a little bit of a different view. But I just want to read it to you so that you can see it here. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 30 Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight rejoicing before him always. Now, who is this I that was standing before him? Well, if you go to verse 1, he describes this I as wisdom. Another way the Septuagint Greek translates to logos. So sometimes wisdom if you remember one of the, the famous uh, movies of the 21st century, the Da Vinci Code, uh, a lot of people were frightened by the Da Vinci Code, but they came up with this, this concept of Sophia. So wisdom in the Greek is Sophia, and, uh, but the Greeks used 
wisdom from Proverbs and they translated it to Lagos. It's pretty interesting. But that's how the Jewish people understood wisdom. It was that that was beside God in the middle of creation. If you read all of chapter 8 in Proverbs, you'll understand that wisdom walked be, before God. Wisdom was at his side at the creation of the universe. So that's when the Jewish people heard Lagos, they kind of understood this notion of wisdom. However, it was distinct from God, and it wasn't God. Remember, the Jewish culture was a strong emphatic religion that preaches monotheism. You can only have one God. And that's true. Christians preach monotheism. There's only one God. So for them to think that the word or that the logos was another God or a type of God wouldn't coincide with their religion. They would deny it completely. They only saw it as God's active force. But it wasn't a person. So for the Greeks, the Logos was behind the order of the universe. For the Jewish people, it was the wisdom and also a creative force in the universe. But John uses the word in such a fashion that brings cohesion to both, to both groups. And John, what he is doing now is redefining the term. I love it when John redefines the term because he is not held down by the cultural understanding of what the word means. What John is doing is some type of contextualization where he's adapting the message in a way where he's getting the people to listen, but then he does the old switcheroo, you know, the, switch, the, the bait and switch. So he brings the people in, but then he redefines the term. And we're going to get to that term in verse 14 because look what verse 14 says in John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What does John do? He brings them in. The Greeks understand Logos. The Jewish people understand Logos. And they have this type of understanding where they can be like, okay, John, I get it. Okay, I, I follow you. I follow you. But once John hits verse 14 and he says, the word became flesh, that's a bomb. Jewish people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're saying God Almighty? You're saying the force of God has become man? And then the, the, the Greeks, on the other hand, are, are, are even more like dumbfounded because they're like, whoa, wait, no. The spirit realm, the, 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 the gods of, of this universe, they will never take on material body because material is decaying. Material is bad. That which you can touch is no good. We are waiting to leave this world so that we could become like the spirit beings of the heaven. So for the Greeks, this understanding of the word would be a complete bomb to their theology. But John doesn't care. He bombards them with what they think they know, and then who defines the term for them? Jesus defines the term for them. So John has no fear in preaching Jesus Christ as the word of God made flesh. What is John saying? 
Well, at the end of verse 2, or at the end of verse 1, he says the word was God. And we'll get to that in a bit. So can you imagine what the, what the people think at that moment when John presents this concept of the word? People must be like, man, we were with you for like the first couple of phrases, but yeah, you're a little cuckoo man. I'm going to keep going. Because yeah, the word became flesh. That's just not going to fly with me. We, we have a way different understanding. But that's the importance of the gospel. That's why John does what he does. That's why you have to see Jesus in light of what the gospel of John preaches. Because although many, many, many in this world would say, I'm down with Jesus. Like I told you guys last week, Bono ripped off that wonderful uh, phrase from Mother Teresa where she said, I don't have a problem with Jesus, but I have a problem with the church. Well, chances are you are going to have a problem with Jesus. Yeah, obviously you're going to have a problem with the church because we're all a bunch of sinners. We're all hypocrites sometimes, and that's true. You can't, just, you can't just point at me and be like, oh, the pastor's a hypocrite. And I can't just point at you and say, you guys are all hypocrites. We're all, we all fail God. The, the word of God says that we all have sinned and fallen short from the glory of God. We're all sinners. Of course we're going to have problems with the church. No one's perfect. If we were all perfect people, we would be in paradise. We would be in a utopian world. But, friends, we're people. You get mad when they cut you in front of the coffee line at church. You get mad because they don't make your latte on time. I mean, come on. We're people. Of course we're going to have problems with the church. But, but to say that we won't have a problem with Jesus is a little bit hypocritical too. Because we can say, yeah, well, he's cool. Look, yeah, Jesus, he, 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 uh, he, 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 he spent time with the poor. He spent time with the sick. He spent time with the disenfranchised. He spent time with all these people that no one liked. And that's cool. I mean, I get that. He, if he was here, he'd be a social justice advocate, advocating for all the people around us that are suffering. And I think he would to a certain extent. But we can never forget why Jesus came. He didn't come just to mend the poor or break the, uh, or heal the, the brokenhearted or heal the, the people that, that are sick. And He didn't just come for that. Although he did do it, he didn't just come for that. If not, he should have healed everybody. But there was plenty of people that were sick. He didn't just come to do his social justice agenda because he didn't have a social justice agenda. I'm pretty sure if Jesus would come down now, he would be praying and feeling hurt for the people at the border and for the people suffering in Europe and for the people suffering in all parts of this world. I think he would feel that, that charge, but it was never in compromise of his message. And that's the message that John is proclaiming to you. So if you want to get Jesus right, you have to understand his message. And in order to understand his message, you can't be afraid to say it, that Jesus was God, and the reason why he was God was because he needed to save humanity. Not just save them from their sickness, save them from their dead spirits. We were all dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, incapable of saving ourselves, until Christ Jesus died for us. At the very beginning of John, that is what he is trying to do. He's not going to bait and switch you on the sense of like, oh, fall in love with Jesus. He's cool, yeah. He's not going to present a Jesus that is all flowery and, and, and the hippie Jesus of the 70s. He's not going to present that type of Jesus because he wants you to know right off the bat who he is. 
And if you don't accept them at the beginning, then you're not going to accept them later on. That's why it's beautiful how Genesis, and how we're going to read into this a little bit more, but how Genesis and John chapter 1 are so amazing because Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning, God, it starts with God. So obviously if you don't accept God at the beginning, you're not going to accept the rest of the Bible. Because if you have a problem with who God is, then you're obviously going to have a whole problem with the rest of the Bible. And then in John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word. So if you have a problem with Jesus being or claiming to be God, then you're going to have a problem with the rest of the Gospels. You're going to have a problem with the rest of the, the New Testament. You're going to have a problem with Paul and Peter and James and John. But this is the Jesus that needs to be presented and the Jesus that needs to be preached. He doesn't define, he is not defined by culture. Jesus redefined culture. So that, my friends, is what we cannot shy away from. You heard me speak to Henry and one of the vows that we spoke to Henry today was like, don't shy away from preaching the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there will come a point in time where the pressure from the world will come into the church and say, you have to preach uh, for, for, for LGBTQ uh, rights and, 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 and give them their place. You have to preach for this. You have to preach for that. And you will get pressure from that. If not, we'll take away your 501c3. We'll take away your tax-exempt status. We'll take you away. We'll shut you down as a church if you don't preach the culture of popular culture. And what are we going to do? Oh, man, they can't take away our tax-exempt. <sighs> okay. No, we must firmly preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost. And it's easy to say now, I get it, yeah, it's easy. There's no one knocking at our doors, breaking the doors down and, and coming in with M16s. It's easier to say now, but what if it does happen? And we can't act as if it doesn't happen because that was the whole pattern of the first three centuries of the Christian church. That's the pattern of the church in the 21st century in some eastern parts of Europe and some parts of Asia. That's how it is, and that's how it's going down. It was incredible for me to realize this as a kid when my parents took me to Spain one time and we couldn't speak or, or, or bring Bibles in across, right across the border from Spain into the country of Morocco because it was illegal. And, and for a young kid, I, it blew my mind to think carrying a Bible is illegal. It blew my mind. But that's where what some parts of the country or the world feel. What if it happens here? Are you going to be like, uh, yeah, you know what? No, Jesus, he, okay, I get it. Yeah, no, yeah, I won't go to church anymore. It was, a good, it, was a, it was good while it lasted, but I'm good now. I'll stay home and be safe with my family. What are you going to do when you're confronted with the person of Jesus Christ and people ask you, do you really believe he is Christ? Do you really believe he is God? And if you do so, you're going to be thrown in jail, or you're going to be fined, or, you're going to, or your taxes are going to be taken away at the end of the year. What would you do? So that's why, my friends, understanding this Jesus is very important. Because if you don't understand the Jesus of the Bible, then you'll probably get the message wrong. You'll probably have a watered-down message that really doesn't mean much, other than make you feel good at night. That's not the Jesus that John presents, and that's not the Jesus that we are preaching. We are preaching Christ. And as Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, and the one who resurrected will be the one who will come back to save his people. See, the Jews would have to accept this or deny it. 
the Greeks would have to accept this or deny it. And it was contrary to everything that they believed. But John put it there. In the beginning was the word. And it's, it's interesting because the second century church, church, uh, church father, Chrysostom, John Chrysostom says, uh, the Greeks understood uh, the ancient as to be the most appreciative or the most important thing to come across. The, the Greek culture had this wonderful fascination with the ancient world. So the older one was, the, most, the more important it was for them. And, and, and John knew that. And so John says, well, in the beginning. What's, more, what's older than the in the beginning? So this is, this is John being John, and this is why I love the gospel. This is why I love this gospel and, and why it's changed so much of, of who I am as a person that it just gets presented in this way. But this is what we've been going at for these past two weeks, and this is what we're going to be getting into for the, past, for the next several months and years. We're going to know the person of Jesus Christ from the very beginning. So, my friends, I'm going to start off this portion of, uh, of the text with a wonderful quote from 4th century church father Athanasius. Athanasius said, there wasn't a time where Jesus was not. Where Christ was not. Well, what he is saying is, based off John chapter 1, Jesus was always present. Even in our finite minds, to think of a time in the beginning. So if you could, if you could think of the beginning, what would that look like for you? You would think like, in the beginning. Like, what do you see in the beginning? Well, whatever that is, John says, Christ was already there. So what does the first affirmation say in verse 1? In the beginning was the word. So what John is bringing to mind at this very moment in the game is that time doesn't hold Jesus back. There was never a time that Jesus didn't exist. The Jesus that you and I serve, my friends, was never created. Oh, but he came into the, wor into the world through a virgin. But what happened to Christmas? What happened? Well, that's the human the physical side of Jesus, but the word of God was always in existence. And this is why John says it was before everything that happened in the beginning. This is a bold claim. Can you imagine the readers to, to hear John say in the beginning? Like, you must be, you must have some real courage to be able to stand up and say in the beginning. Who can say in the beginning? Who can have that sort of authority to say, hey, in the beginning this happened? Well, bro, you're only 40 years old. Like, how are you going to say in the beginning? You, you, you weren't even born more than two, three decades ago. Oh, but this is the powerful part of the gospel. In the beginning is said because John in, his, in the later chapters, verse, chapter 15, 16, and 17, shows us his understanding of the Trinity. And I love what he teaches on the Trinity in chapter 14, verses 16 through 17 and verse 26. He teaches us this about the Trinity, about the Holy Spirit specifically. He is the helper. He is the spirit of truth. And he will teach you all things. So why can John say in the beginning? Because he's led by 
the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has helped him understand this divine truth. The, the Holy Spirit has pointed him to what truth is, and the Holy Spirit has taught him what truth is. This gospel is a gospel full of the Holy Spirit. And my friends, this is going to be, especially next week when we talk about God's divinity, I mean the divinity of the word, the, that the word was God, it, it's hard. It's like, man, to say that God is in Jesus and Jesus was God and they're both the same, but they're not two people. It's only one person. And you say, but how are they two different persons? And there's only one. Or like, what does that mean? So it's difficult to explain the Trinity, even for people that have been trained in this. Even ask Henry, even if we've graduated in this and have been trained in this, it's a difficult concept to understand. But my friends, the spirit of God will lead you to all truth and will teach you all things. So don't come at the book with trying to just understand it. Be filled with the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God will translate this truth for you. I know it may sound a little mystical and kind of like, ooh, the Spirit's going to translate things for us. Well, we are people of the Spirit. That's why Jesus will later, we're going to read, Jesus, John says uh, through Jesus' lips uh, that it's better for me to leave. It's better for me to go away because the helper is coming. And the helper will help you understand these things. That's why we don't have the physical person of Jesus Christ now. We have the Holy Spirit abiding in us to guide us to all of this. But this, this is wonderful because what John is doing here isn't just making a bold claim as to the beginning, isn't just showing off who he is as a man of God and a man full of the Spirit. But this is John showing himself, connecting the dots to the church. Many of those in the church, his audience were primarily Jewish uh, people that have that had vanished from, the, from Jerusalem. They're, they're all in the diaspora of Asia Minor, especially Ephesus. And they're hiding away in, in, these, in, these, in these places and these cities that have brought refuge to them. But it also includes several other Greeks in there. But primarily so, what John is doing is he's connecting the dots with his people. As he says this, the Jewish person or the person that that is a person of God from the book, will automatically hear, in the beginning was God. It's, a, it's an echo. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. He's bridging this gap between the God of the Old Testament and the God in the New Testament. There's no distinction. Now the God of the Old Testament is now in Jesus in the New Testament. That's that's an equal bold claim. However, he's trying to bridge the gap so that they could understand it. So that they can get, get it and figure that this is who they will follow. It is a type of contextualization for his culture, but he's getting to them at their heart. Because if they deny this, they will deny God. They would have understood this. And so what he's doing is giving them a reference point. Here's the reference point in the beginning, the point of creation. In, in Genesis, God creates the world. In John, there is a new creation. 
And then we know that new creation because we stand with Paul in, in Corinthians and we say, behold, now we are a new creation in Jesus Christ. The old things have passed away and now the new things have made, been made new. What John is doing is connecting the God of creation, creation with the God who brings a new creation in the lives of the church. If you examine yourself and you are a Christian and you are a son of God, you will know that you are a new creation. How many of you can say amen to that? Thank you, God, for saving me and making me a new creation. Many wives will say to, their, to God, thank you for making my husband a new creation because Lord knows I would have left him a long time ago if you didn't step in. We are new people in Jesus Christ. We are new beings, new entities created by Jesus Christ. But the powerful force of God from the beginning is also in the word. See, what, what's going on here is this tension with, with John and his hearers this entire time. They're understanding that the word is separate from God. But, but John is saying, no, 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 no. The word is God. And it's creating a new creation. And they have to wrestle with that. They have to get that. So the God of Genesis is, and is the God of Israel, but he is now in this new creation making new people new. And this creation account, it, it serves us better because verses 3 of chapter 1, verses 4, and verses 5 speak on creation. Look at me very quickly. We're not going to talk about it today, but look at verse 3 of chapter 1. All things were made through him. There is a creation aspect of, of the word. Verse 4, in him was life. That's the new creation, a new life. What happens in, in Genesis chapter 1? God creates the heavens and the earth, and then he gives life to it. He brings the light. He brings the water. He brings the vegetation. He brings the animals. He makes the man. And he makes the woman. God gives life in, the, in Genesis chapter 1. In John, John chapter 1, God is giving a new life. And in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. You guys remember the first creative, creative thing in order? The light. Let there be light. And oh, wow, there was light. So John is very smart in doing this because he's bringing this connection in so that, that people understand now that there isn't another creation happening right now. The new creation is in the heart. God is bringing life to dead hearts. God is bringing light into dark hearts. Friends, that's what this world needs. It needs the light of Jesus Christ shining through the church to light the way for the gospel of Jesus. Friends, that's you and me. We are this cr new creation that will shed this light and begin with Christ and show him to the rest of the world. This aspect, friends, is, is a strong concept to get because it, it is talking about the beginning. I don't want to rush through it too quickly, but I want to emphasize it enough where we understand what this means. This is John's firm motive on describing the word. It's from the beginning. That, that has to set, that has to set in, in his audience and it has to set here. 
We have to understand that we claim that Jesus Christ was before the beginning. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, here's what they, how they do it. They put Jesus in time. That's why we read it last week. There's genealogies and there's time. There's a time frame in creative order. There's birth narratives. There's the birth narrative of John the Baptist and then the birth narrative of Jesus Christ in Luke. There's, there's genealogies all the way to Abraham and to Adam. There's time references and time points, physical time. They, 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 they also present Jesus appearing before men, before audiences, before, before men and women. Their emphasis is to prove his very manhood, that he was a man, a physical entity, a physical human being. You ever wonder why John doesn't have the virgin conception? Doesn't talk about it. All these other ones do. He was born of a virgin. And that he was with people for a season. Some estimate 33 years. That's a time reference. That's, that's understandable. We, we get it because we, we're, we're focusing on a point in time. 33 years. We all understand what that means. I'm, I wish I was 33, but I'm 35 and going on 36. And some of us that are 60 wish we were 20. I mean, we get that point because it's talking about a point in time. What does John do? John doesn't talk about his birth in a time. He talks about John, Jesus being at the beginning. He doesn't even talk about him being born because he was never born. He was never made. He was always from beginning, even beforehand. Whereas the, the, the other synoptic gospels talk about Jesus appearing before humanity, John says he was with God. The other gospels, like I said, mention and prove that he's very man, John proves that he's very God. While the other Gospels say that he was with people for the season, for a certain season, 33 years, John says he abided with God from eternity past. We don't know what that is. It was from eternity. Can you guys count back to eternity? We can't. He has no beginning. He predates all existence. Our point of reference is that he was before the beginning, and he that was before the beginning holds your life in his hands. You can rest assured, my friends, that you don't have, your life is not in someone who developed his Christ-likeness. Your life doesn't rest assured on a crazy man that hung on a cross and claimed to be God when he was born a physical human being by a mother and a father. That's not who we claim to believe. That's not who we affirm. We affirm that our lives have been changed and made a new creation by Jesus Christ who was from the beginning. Your God, your Jesus, was never made, had always existed, from the beginning. And to make it even more emphatic, the second thing or the second affirmation that John does to really stress this point, it's not only that he was from the beginning, but the second affirmation goes deeper. He was from the beginning and he was with God. Read that with me one more time in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's an interesting translation because it's not a common, it's not a common word in Greek 
the preposition in Greek is pros, toward, forward. It's not a common one that they use for with, to translate with. They have a different word for that. But what does it mean? It means that this with aspect, the, the, the literal meaning is that Jesus and God were face to face. He was toward Jesus and God was toward, and he was toward God. So we have this face-to-face concept. So what is John doing by doing that? He's, he's making their minds go even further. Like if you think about it right now, I just told you what John says in verse 1, that he was from the beginning because he was God. But now he says he was with God. So now you have to think like, okay, so... If he's God, he was in the beginning because he's God. But now he's with God. So, so, so there is this separate. So what's going on, John? Okay, I'm kind of messed up. I'm kind of confused now. So we're talking about two gods now? Are we preaching polytheism? No, 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 no. We're not preaching polytheism. What John is stressing here is the personhood of Christ. See, there's only one God in three persons. Everyone is a person. They all have the same essence. They're all the same God. But what, God, what, what John is stressing here is that he was with God. What, what the Greek, this, this preposition began to mean later on in, 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 in the centuries, that this was a relational value to say with. What, what he is stressing here is that Jesus is in a relationship with the Father. Everything Jesus does comes and stems from the relationship he has with the Father. The reason why you are saved is because Jesus had a relationship with the Father that chose you from the beginning of time and he gave his life for you. Why? Because he's one with the Father. Because he's in a relationship with the Father. Everything he's ever done in your life is because he's been in a relationship with the Father. Everything he will do in your life is because he's in a relationship with the Father. Because he is in God and with God. And next week we're going to preach why. Because he is God. So the emphasis here, my friends, is on relationship. John uses this same word in his epistles, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, and he emphasizes this concept of unity. They were united together. They were one together in a relationship. And then, my friends, when we read the Lord's Prayer in John 17, we're going to read something very important. We're going to read that Jesus says, Lord, let them be one just as you and I are one. What Jesus is seeking his church to be is to demonstrate the same relational aspect he has with the Father. Let them be one, united together. So friends, this is Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of John, but this is his presentation of Jesus Christ. So my prayer for you And do not miss next week because next week we close it off by doing the third affirmation on him saying he was God. So let's stand up today. And why don't we, uh, why don't we,
give God a round of applause today. This beautiful Sunday. We got to pray for your kids. We ordained Henry. We celebrated his birthday. And we got to learn about Jesus Christ. Nothing better. You couldn't have spent your Sunday any better. Maybe you say you could have with some breakfast and Netflix, but this is better, friends. Jesus is better. Let's pray. We are always in awe of who you are, Father. And your word will never come back empty. What you have done in our lives, the changes that you've done in our hearts, the reason why we come to church at times is because we know the danger of sin. Because we've tasted what the world has offered and we realized that's not enough. We've come back to you because you were the one that brought us here. And only the one who was before time began could have done so. So we thank you, Jesus Christ, for your perfect unity with the Father by giving us as what we Consider in our time another chance. Oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Thank you for this second chance. And as your word teaches us, there's many more after. We will always fail you, but you will never fail us. Thank you for being God in our lives. Thank you for dwelling with us and for your Holy Spirit in our hearts, guiding us to all truth. I pray that the Holy Spirit not only guides us to all truth, but does that work of the comforter. Father, there's many of us that are going through trials. There's many of us that are doubtful, are scared. Maybe some of us are doubtful with our immigration status. Maybe some of us are, are just scared that we might lose our job that we may not be able to support our family. I pray that that God that was before all time began has promised us the comforter who will comfort our souls, comfort our spirits, and guide us to you. I pray that he bring peace to this beautiful congregation, that he bring peace and hope to every single person here. We could all rest assured that our kids are safe, that our schools will be safe, that there are praying parents out there covering those schools daily. In Jesus' name. And we all say, Amen.